This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Jeff Kosas. Jeff is the Senior Procurement Executive at the General Services Administration, responsible for overall policy. And it's great to have Jeff back on the show. It's been a while, Jeff. Um, Good morning. Great to see you. Good morning, Roger. I'm so happy to have the chance to go full acquisition nerd with you today. Yeah, you got two acquisition nerds here. Uh, So please, listening audience, be patient with us. But uh, hopefully there'll be a lot of good stuff. Uh, Of course there will. Um, So, Jeff, first of all, I think it would be good if – you know, the Office of Government-Wide Policy at GSA, there, there's a lot going on there. There's a lot of different areas of responsibility. I thought it may be good for folks uh, if you could just give an overview of uh, your organization and the things you touch, and then we can dive down into some discrete topics. Perfect. Sounds fun. As you mentioned, uh, my office is part of the Office of Government-Wide Policy. You know, that name should tell you quite a bit, it emphasizes that we have a big government-wide role in acquisition. First, we're one of three voting members of the FAR Council. That's the body that writes all the acquisition rules. It's us along with NASA and DOD. GSA manages and maintains the FAR, and we run acquisition.gov. That's your online source for the FAR and all of the agency supplemental acquisition regulations. We manage and coordinate OMB's semi-annual review of its regulatory agenda. That's over 60 different federal agencies, and it's looking at all of their regulations, not just acquisition. Uh, We serve as the secretariat for five sets of regulations, including the FAR, the federal travel regs, the federal management regs, and we operate the Federal Acquisition Institute. That's the body that provides acquisition training for about 170,000 federal civilian professionals. FAI also executes the major certification programs for OFPP. That's FACC, FACCORE, FACPPM, and they carry out OFPP's workforce development agenda. You know, so that's our government-wide role. By shift to our GSA role, as a senior procurement executive, by statute, we're charged with uh, the management direction of an agency's acquisition system. And as you know, GSA's acquisition system is big. We are, after all, America's buyer, and the government's landlord. This year, we're going to have $19 billion in obligations, $5.5 billion in leases, plus we're going to influence spend of another $60 billion. So part of our overseeing that acquisition system, it's making sure it's it functions smoothly through regulations, uh, the GSAR, through policy, uh, the GSAM's uh, acquisition letter and the like, through review boards around big regulations, through procurement management reviews. We're the approval authority for major actions, uh, such as uh, justifying other than full and open competition, class deviations, and all kinds of special circumstance actions. And we oversee the training and the development of some 8,300 members of GSA's acquisition workforce. So 
That's a lot of stuff, Jeff, I have to say. <laughs> um, before, I want to focus on acquisition workforce in just a second, but I just wanted to get your thoughts. So you have your government-wide responsibility and you have your GSA-focused responsibilities. And I always felt there's kind of, there was kind of a yeah, clearly a nexus between the two because GSA is a government-wide entity. Um, do you learn from what's going on at GSA? And does that reflect back into the overall, you know, government-wide responsibilities and vice versa? Is there, is there some, you know, some lessons learned and sort of information sharing there? It's kind of a strategic point in the whole process that you, that you, uh, that you occupy. Absolutely. Much of the acquisition system is really set up to encourage uh, pilots, tests, uh, to encourage an agency to go take action, uh, run with its own deviation, come back, take that stuff government-wide. A lot of what we do is act as first mover, is test out concepts, and then help make the business case to uh, update, to change the FAR, and to apply those concepts uh, across government. In that, in your role, you also, don't you, you work a, pretty closely with OMB and OFPP in particular? Absolutely. Besides our role in the FAR Council, besides their oversight of FAI, we work really closely with OFPP around category management. We are one of the highest spend agencies, uh, so all kinds of OMB work groups looking at opportunities to streamline acquisition, to simplify it, to bring new entrances in, to apply some of the climate and sustainability concepts. Whatever the priorities of the administration are, GSA is likely somewhere in the background working with OMB to help carry that out. Yeah, it's, uh, again, it is a, like, you're almost like the spokes of a wheel. You're, you're, you're the axle to lots of different, you know, stakeholders across the board. And in particular, one of the stakeholders the did the GSA acquisition workforce. Can you talk about some of your key priorities uh, in supporting the development of the acquisition workforce at GSA? Absolutely. Roger, thanks to some really uh, good work by uh, my colleague, Nicole Evans over at Treasury, I can tell you since the pandemic, we've had 15 uh, CFO Act agencies move to a, an aggressive telework posture. We now have 15 of them that uh, have their workforce telework at least six days a pay period. That makes the talent wars incredibly real. We are very definitely aggressively looking to hire to add new members of our workforce for uh, couple of reasons. You know, between the bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act, that's some six and a half billion in new spend uh, above the baseline. That's 3.4 billion through the uh, infrastructure law to modernize 26 land ports of entry. And that's uh, 3.15 billion in the Inflation Reduction Act, all about converting facilities to high performance green buildings, using low carbon materials, and encouraging sustainable technologies. There's tremendous new demand for uh, fast uh, services in assisted acquisition, where this year we filled the pipeline the earliest we ever have. And we're seeing a tremendous focus on new entrants, on rebuilding the industrial base through uh, the federal supply schedules. So knowing we need to be aggressively hiring, we need to add staff, we have some cool things going for us. According to the annual uh, benchmark surveys, we're number one in employee engagement for 1102s. We are number two in uh, contracting professionals who feel encouraged to come up with new and better ways to do the work. But it also means we need to really rethink how can we broaden our uh, recruiting pool? How can we reach out to bring uh, new entrants in? We are aiming both at new entrants at the uh, 
GS9 level through a government-wide uh, shared uh, job announcement, which GSA set up and led, and uh, at the 13 level and above, where we are updating our policy to make it much easier for us to hire folks who have not worked for federal government before. But how can we bring in folks from state and local government? How can we bring in buyers from industry and update our curriculum and our policy to set them up for uh, success and to help us to respond to these growing needs? So Jeff, that's a lot of lot focus on hiring. How does it work? Because can you, for the listening audience, just you, you are the sort of your office is the oh has overall responsibility for the acquisition workforce, but then there's the operational, there's the federal acquisition service, and then there's PBS, the public building service, and they have you know their contracting core uh, folks in those organizations and operationally they're trying to seek to hire. How do you guys coordinate that between the three organizations? Roger, my office works closely with HR. We set the policy, we set the standards, but we are not the arm that does all the hiring. Each office does its own hiring. One of the things I'm really excited about, for the first time in many years, uh, we have returned to on-site hiring, where GSA uh, contracting HR goes together to where the acquisition professional is, does interviews on the spot and makes conditional offers of employment on the spot. You know, in some ways that's a return to uh, some old practices, but by going where the contracting professionals are, not the ones who necessarily who work just in federal government, but the ones who work in the commercial sector, the ones who work in the state and local sector, it opens up uh, a lot of opportunities for us to bring in some incredible talent into the agency. Yeah, and you know, that's a good place to stop and because uh, I want to pick up on that you know, that pick, you know, adding talent and different locations and sort of thing with just what you're seeing from a telework perspective in terms of attracting new employees. But that'll have to wait till when we come back, Jeff, because we're already up on the break. Uh, my guest today is Jeff Kosas. He's a senior procurement executive at the General Services Administration. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jeff Kosas. Jeff is the Senior Procurement Executive at the General Services Administration, and we're talking about his office, its roles and responsibilities, and also what's going on at GSA from a policy and operational perspective a little bit. Uh, when we took the break, we were talking about the acquisition workforce, and Jeff, I just, you know, we're hopefully we're entering the post-COVID period, but uh, there's been a lot of lessons learned out of COVID. There's been the changes in uh, basically work workforce patterns uh, in, in office versus hybrid versus virtual. Um, what's your sense of where things are and what you're seeing at GSA and how does that play in attracting people? You mentioned at the end of the last segment about you know, attracting, you know, basically the best and brightest in a certain sense and of acquisition talent. And it sounded like you're, that's, geographically sort of a neutral thing, you know, or even might be positive outside, you know, big metropolitan areas, perhaps given, you know, the pay scales and that sort of thing. Exactly, Roger. We are definitely seeing GSA and a number of agencies moving more and more in a direction where geography is neutral. If uh, a lot of our jobs are going to be full, uh, fully remote positions, then geography doesn't matter 
So I'm no longer looking for the best employee in DC, but we're looking for the best employee in the US. That's definitely where things are going. We are seeing incredible talent uh, coming in across all levels. But that move also opens up some real cultural uh, challenges. There's tremendous value and importance on in-person context in the relationships that get formed. So part of this shift is how do we rethink those and how do we ensure that we are forming strong and healthy teams, that we are doing all the types of informal contexts that are part of developing a strong organizational culture. That's the balance that we're playing with right now. So as you think about operational culturally, one thing I wanted to follow up of, and I think it's, you know, we've talked about this before. I remember the first time you told me you were seeing just even within your own office, you know, the ability to track you know, high quality, high folks, because now you're not limited in a certain sense by one area, you can look across the entire country, right? And that's just, you know, that's 300 some million people versus, you know, three or 4 million, right? So of course, it's the logic of that. But are, are you thinking about how that engagement, because GSA is, uh, you know, plays that role of market maker, and they bring customer agencies and contractors together to conduct business. And a lot of it, to your point, can be done virtually. How how do you think people are sort of addressing or will address that, you know, time getting together? You know, you hear it from industry all the time. It would be great to be able to meet more with, you know, my contracting officer and that sort of thing. Is that something you're you're thinking about how to sort of balance it? I mean, it's you know, we're 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 in a here hybrid world at a minimum. It definitely is. The balance is hard. Part of it is making sure that you are planning and allowing for the occasional in-person event, whether it's an in-person meeting for a couple of days, whether it's uh, informal uh, get-togethers. It's definitely part of the picture. We are working closely with our HR team. We're talking to industry. We're learning best practices from us. At the same time, we have to recognize there's a real talent war that's going on out there and that we have to recognize what alternatives exist and remain an employer of choice, recognize what the workforce is looking for and what we have to do to be able to keep bringing top talent into the agency. Yeah, we're in a brave new world in a certain way, right? I mean, you know, with um, the post-COVID sort of workforce and how it's going to work. And, you know, I think there's a lot to to still yet evolve. And I'll be interested to see how GSA and, and the government in general evolves in terms of make, you know, there's value in in-person, but there's also value being able to work virtually and finding that right balance is going to be interesting. Um, with that in mind, I wanted to turn a little bit to, uh, to talk about somewhere industry would like to meet in person with GSA and that's uh, on the schedules program in particular. And, um, you know, I know let's just talk about transactional data reporting first and, I know that's something that you've worked on for a long time. I remember back several years ago, the initial first steps and the uh, advance notice of public rulemaking and the public meetings and all that good stuff to having it evolve to where it's um, going to expand to as an optional feature. You know, people can sign up across the entire schedules. Can you sort of talk about where we are and uh, where GSA is going? I'd love to talk about that. Part of the theory behind transactional data reporting is that we should be relying on market forces, not regulation, 
as the tool to get us a, a good price. We also recognized that there would be a lot of value in that data. Roger, I think you know uh, I'm a history major. I recently ran across a really fascinating uh, quote in this bit of uh, procurement history that I'd love to share here. Quote, a prerequisite of centralized government purchasing is centralization of information relating to those purchases. What is bought, prices paid, specifications used, and similar data must be collected to determine whether a specific commodity shall be included within the general schedule of supplies. Now, that's from the May 1943 edition of Federal Procurement, a manual uh, by Clifton Mack, Director of Procurement for the Procurement Division, Treasury Department. The Procurement Division in Treasury was subsequently renamed the Bureau of Federal Supply before it was folded into GSA at our creation. Just a second. Just, okay, before you go on some more. So I like like I know the GSA library closed years ago. Okay, and it went all to, you know, so because I remember going to that library when I worked there, uh, do research. So where did you find this quote? I found it in that 1943 manual, which uh, my wonderful co-worker, uh, Deborah Irwin, had shared with me. Oh, my gosh. So you still, oh, Deborah Irwin. Oh, that's a that's a name from the past. That's uh, And the policy attorney for your office at, at uh, uh, certain points in time during her career. Yeah, uh, uh, Deb is the CAC counsel. She oversees all of the FAR cases even today. But think about that, Roger. 80 years ago, we were recognizing the importance of prices paid information in making acquisition decisions. Is that not a fantastic data point? Well, I, I, I would agree with you. Yes, it's, it's, it is probably the number one data point. What is the government paying for the products, the commodities that it is purchasing? So, it's, and that's, you know, is, that sort of validates TDR what are you seeing it going to be used for? You know, how are, uh, how are contracting officers, customer agencies going to use it from a planning perspective? And are there other benefits to it, whether it's security related or um, other things? Absolutely. Let's start with price, but it's not mainly about price. But what we do know is we ran a test uh, on TDR in 2018, in 2019, and 2020. Each year, we looked at how prices changed on identical items, and each year, prices on contractors with TDR were better than the non-TDR contractors. But let's talk about those non-price benefits, because that, I think, is the much more important and interesting story. There's at least five major benefits to us in using uh, TDR in non-priced context. First, it's alignment to category management principles. Office of Federal Procurement Policy, they call out data to collect, data to support spend analysis, customer analysis, commodity analysis. And OFPP emphasizes giving industry an understanding of what items are selling, lets them focus on opportunities to sell well and to reduce cost. Second, secure supply chain. The data we get through TDR is data we can then share with agencies if something that they buy today is found in six months to pose a cyber threat. By collecting that TDR data, we can go back to the agencies and share information. Three, TDR helps us with a resilient supply chain. You know, we're in a global supply chain these days. Production points constantly change. TDR data is tremendous in helping us ensure that we're complying with trade laws and other laws through the verified product portal. Uh, 
Four, we're trying to uh, expand the industrial base. We're trying to bring in new entrants, uh, small businesses in particular. Well, one of the initial TDRs was lower reg regulatory costs. I believe that contractors are rational. They're smart. They vote with their feet. And where they've had the choice, they join TDR. And the ones who do are showing greater sales growth. They're showing a better understanding of the marketplace. They're being more successful schedule contractors. Finally, TDR makes it easier for customers to comply with the rules because GSA can use the data to keep the program fresh. We can identify saturated markets. We can identify markets that need new entrants. We can identify confusion, pain points, and where things are much easier to follow and to understand. Let's talk about that when we come back, Jeff, about the use of the data. And I have a couple, a couple other questions about uh, particularly the regulatory burden and the value of TDR um, and its pro-competition focus. My guest today is Jeff Kosis. He's a senior procurement executive at the General Services Administration. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jeff Kosis. He's a senior procurement executive at the General Services Administration. And when he took the break, we were talking about TDR. Um, and uh, Jeff, I know one of the things that you're focusing on is the use of that data. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. Roger, our critics would say, Jeff, you keep talking TDR, but we're not using the data consistently and we're not using it well. You know, I'd agree. We are not yet using it consistently. We're not yet using it well. And even so, with an inconsistent and early use of the data, we are seeing better pricing. We are seeing benefits around category management, secure supply chain, supply chain resiliency, and so forth. So there's just tremendous benefits in the data. And as we learn more, as we get better at using it, it will only further improve our potential. Yeah, well... Um... The benefits to date have been such that I, I, I mean, I th there's such a great case for the expansion of this and providing, because it does reflect the federal market, right? It's responsive in terms of pricing and the volume and what's being purchased. And that's all wonderful information and information that has been used. It may be more effectively used in the future. Well, it should, will be. And it that's, can only become a more successful you know, part and parcel of the schedules program over time. So you've built the foundation for it. Um, and you, since you built the foundation, you got to build the rest of the house, I would think, right? Oh, absolutely. So we're getting ready for the TDR expansion. At the end of the pilot, uh, what I laid out is a, a couple of key things that have to happen for FAST to be ready to expand it. Most importantly was developing uh, training, rolling out that training, and working to further cleanse the data. Well, subsequently, they've hired data scientists who are cleansing the data, who are ingesting it into the e-tools. They've developed an enhanced training program and are beginning delivery. And they're working to finalize their implementation plan. So all good moves to further expand TDR. And once we're confident we've got a strong plan and that the training is working, FAST will be able to announce an expansion. Yeah, it sounds like you're definitely putting in a sound foundation for you know, moving to this you know, more competitive approach. And I just would have to say that it, in contrast to the price reduction clause, which is an anti-competitive mechanism that really only benefits at the end of the day, lawyers and auditors in terms of the sort of gotcha approach, 
but the you know but i i still i always and i've you know, i've said this multiple times publicly and i'll say it to you again it it boggles my mind that the federal government could have a policy in place that fundamentally restricts the ability of companies to compete in the private sector as a condition of getting a government contract in the for commercial products uh, this impacts small business more the price reduction clause impacts disproportionately small businesses who have less resources to be able to manage a government contract you know their their margins are are even narrower um, it just makes no competitive sense in the world of the internet to uh, include that clause anymore. And I think, you know, frankly, I think that's a, a huge benefit um, of freeing up, you know, small businesses and commercial firms to be able to compete unimpeded across, you know, the federal government as well as in the commercial marketplace. So I, you know, I think that that's another added benefit as well. And, um, you know, uh, uh, I'm not going to ask you to comment on that piece. I just want to ask you now about sustainable acquisition. I know it's a big focus of this administration, and I was something that your your office is at the forefront of working on. It is an enormous focus. I can't tell you how many key initiatives are underway, but let me at least share a few of them. We recently announced that we are forming an Acquisition Federal Advisory Committee the brilliantly named GAP fact for the GSA Acquisition Policy Federal Advisory Committee. Its initial focus is going to be on climate and sustainability. We're looking forward to kicking that off very soon. As the uh, government's landlord, we are targeting zero emission federal buildings by 2045. We've already reduced emissions 50% from the baseline. And as an agency, we've got 9,500 federal buildings that we own or lease making us a leading buyer of electricity. So tremendous potential there. We also have 220,000 vehicles in the federal fleet, where we are the mandatory buyer for uh, non-tactical vehicles. So we are aiming at 100% zero emission federal vehicles by 2035, and hopefully all light-duty vehicles by years earlier, by 2027. FAST and PBS just worked together to establish the first government-wide contracts for EV charging infrastructure, charging stations to be built across the country, all about developing that infrastructure out there. GSA just uh, developed standards for reduced embodied carbon in federal design and construction. We are working towards a similar standard to promote clean solar energy. And we have just issued an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking, helping us think through how should we get be addressing the challenge of single-use plastics. That is a ton of different initiatives in the climate and sustainability space, just at the GSA level. Yeah, Jeff, I wanted to, uh, I, I got a few questions, but the first one that just sort of struck me is when you, when you mentioned the fleets. And, you know, I think one of the things that I take away from that, and there's this is a sort of tried and true model for GSA and its role in the market because GSA back in the day, I don't know if you recall, was one of the leaders in you know the adoption of um, uh, airbags in vehicles and seatbelts. Um, you know the things that weren't necessarily required, but the federal government buying in volume over time helped you know sort of leverage that that technology and capability. Um, I, I that's clearly the strategy here, right? Absolutely. This is about using the power of federal acquisition as a catalyst trying to go drive forward with a lot of these initiatives. 
Yeah, and it's and you see the private sector doing the same thing, whether it's uh, you know commitments to buy delivery vehicles by lots of like companies, you know that last mile. It seems to me that you could get a tipping point maybe quicker than you would otherwise, of course, will depend on the supply chain and rare earth minerals and that sort of thing. Um, so from from your perspective, one of the things I think your jo- your office has done a great job at is the outreach and engagement with the public and, you know, with your stakeholders. Um, are there things that we'll see, you know, we just, there's uh, the um, advanced notice public rulemaking about a single use plastics that, you know, the coalition obviously made sure our members aware of, and we may submit comments, but, um, or just feedback in general on it. Um, do you have an overarching strategy of how you're going to, uh, you know, do your public outreach on all these different things? You know, this is an agency level initiative. Lots of things are, are being coordinated across the agency. Two things that I would focus on specifically with my office. One is our federal advisory committee on uh, acquisition. FACA meetings are both at the committee and subcommittee level are uh, public meetings. They are open to everyone. They actually get publicized in the federal register. Well, at the moment we are just vetting final presumptive members, like doing the ethics checks, the other background things in preparation for an announcement. So pretty soon we have to be able to publicize that first kickoff meeting. Second, we're very fortunate in having an amazingly talented procurement ombudsman, Maria Swaby, in my office. Maria and her team lead all kinds of efforts around promoting communication, promoting industry outreach, helping to uh, demonstrate best practice, to share a lot of that across the agency, demonstrating different means and opportunities to increase engagement. Maria's been very involved in a number of these documents, helping us make sure that we have an average strategy that is going to be focused on reaching the right audiences and listening to feedback rather than just going through formalities. Yeah, on the on the um, Federal Advisory Committee, do you have a sense of the timeline of when that's going to be announced in terms of the membership and then your first meeting? Is this fall, uh, this winter? We're not uh, going to pin you down too much. No, that's okay. If everything goes well, we will see a first meeting in September or October. Okay. And one of the questions I had about that um, was, and I understand why you're doing it, in a, in a, if, at least from my sort of procurement background, it's it's just some complexities there when you're thinking about or contemplating the idea whether or not, for example, evaluation criteria for best value selection should include the you know, reporting of greenhouse gases or how you've reduced them or what your actual levels are, whether it's a you know manufacturer or a supply or a service company. Um, and those things can get really complicated pretty quickly. Is this as part of this design to try to figure out where there are those leverage points, first of all, and then are there ways that make sense that are balanced to get public feedback on how to potentially incorporate those things into the acquisition system? Yes. We're trying to think through at least three major areas. One, how do we make these requirements clear, meaningful, and rational to industry? How do we help them realize what's expected, when is it expected, why is it expected, and what does it take to be compliant. Two, there is a lot being thrown at our contracting professionals these days. There's requirements around 
not just to plan sustainability, but around equity, around trade, around cyber. You know, we can't expect the CEOs to be experts in every one of these disciplines, but I'm hoping the advisory committee will help us understand how do we best reach and educate and share key information with the acquisition workforce. So understand what's going on, why is it going on, and what are they being asked to do? And third, uh, I want to think about the actual practice of acquisition itself. How do we use uh, a lot of these concepts, uh, whether it's trying to uh, tie them up to uh, test acquisitions, trying to tie them to a procurement lab? Just look at different ways to really learn through experience. And with the incredibly talented people who have offered to be part of this, I think we'll have an opportunity to go focus on all three of those areas. Great. And Jeff, we're up on the break. So we'll we'll finish up on sustainability right there. And when we come back, I want to ask you about another area where you play a significant role, and that's uh, the U.S. Ability One Commission and your role on, uh, um, as I think you're the acting chair now or uh, not? I am very proudly the chair of the Ability One Commission. And chair, and not even acting. That. Okay. Uh, well, congratulations. So when we come Thank back, you. we'll talk a little bit about that. My guest today is Jeff Kosis. He's the senior procurement executive at the General Services Administration. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jeff Kosis. He's the senior procurement executive at the General Services Administration. And Jeff, uh, you are the chair of the U.S. Ability One Commission. and it's a great uh, service. It's, it's a it's a great organization. Can you just talk a little bit for the listening audience and tell them what the Ability One Com- Commission is and its role? Yes, the Ability One Commission is a very small federal agency that's charged with using the power of procurement to create jobs for people who are blind or have significant disabilities. So every year. That's about a $4 billion program in federal contracts, uh, and it creates about 4,000, 40,000 jobs, including jobs for about 3,000 disabled veterans. Maybe the best way to visualize it is if you ever have the opportunity, take a tour of one of the nonprofit agencies and see what it means to provide a job to a person who does have a significant disability. Through the Ability One Commission, we are providing those jobs while getting uh, top-notch products and services at fair market prices. Right. So, and I know um, you were anxious to talk about some of the updates with regard to the the commission. Uh, so what's going on? What, what's, new, what's, what's in the news? <laughs> so we've uh, been doing a few things that I would love the chance to uh, share with uh, you and the listeners. We have created a network of uh, Ability One representatives. Uh, uh, we calling them ABORs. If you think about the role of a small business advocate in a federal agency, somebody who's a program champion, well, that's what the ABORs are doing for the Ability One program. They're helping the federal agencies understand how can they increase employment opportunities while solving procurement problems? How do they look for and add uh, procurement list additions? How can they act as a troubleshooter to head off uh, issues early? How do they help agencies be more effective? The Ability One Commission has just used its regulatory authority to end the sub-minimum wage. You know, I think everyone's familiar with the minimum wage, but 
uh, under the Fair Labor Standards Act, there's actually a sub-minimum wage that can be paid in certain situations. And Ability One has just worked hard to say that all Ability One employees moving forward will earn at least the prevailing wage. I also just issued a policy uh, memo saying that under an Ability One contract, that the nonprofit agencies will buy procurement list items from other nonprofits. Think, for example, our custodial contractor who needs to buy cleaning supplies. We want them to buy the cleaning supplies through the Ability One program, not on the open market. And maybe most importantly, the commission just issued a brand new uh, strategic plan, something all agencies have to do in the second year of a a new presidency under uh, GIPRA. So there's four key pillars in the new Ability One strategic plan. It's all about, uh, one, really transforming or updating the program to expand competitive integrated employment. It's about identifying, publicizing, and supporting increased use of good jobs. It's about ensuring effective governance. And it's about engaging in partnerships within and beyond government to increase Ability One uh, job opportunities. That's a lot of stuff going on, Jeff. Um, are you, I guess, amongst all those different things, is there you one that's, how do you prioritize all the different things that, that you're working on? Amongst all that, it really comes down to how do we make sure that agencies are getting quality products and services uh, at fair prices? And how does that ensure that we are creating jobs for people who are blind or who have significant disabilities? So, you know, everything else is details in making those two things happen. Right. And part of it, too, is a partnership with the private sector as well. Um, Definitely. Commercial firms. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. One, commercial firms are often subcontractors on Ability One contracts, a key way that they help the contracts to be successful. And two, we certainly try and work with commercial firms to hire Ability One workers, many Ability One workers uh, see that as a pathway to employment in the commercial sector. Right. And also, as, as there is distribution, you know, of the products that, you know, Ability One entities are actually, you know, supplying mm-hmm. as well, right? Is that correct? Yeah, there's often a number of very good nonprofit agencies. There are two central nonprofits who kind of oversee all the nonprofit agencies. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is uh, Source America, uh, National Industries for the Blind. And, uh, they're responsible for that allocation process to help us figure out which is the best uh, equipped nonprofit to run with a specific contract. And who else is just, I think, for folks, would you say the Ability One Commission and you're the chair, there's a whole set of agency representatives. Can you just give a flavor? And, uh, you know, you're going to miss somebody and somebody might be offended, but it's a government-wide organization is is a, is my impression. Is that right? Correct. Under the JWAD Act, there's a 15 members who are appointed to the commission. And there's also about, right now, about 36, 37 full-time employees. Of the 15 appointees, 11 are from federal agencies, four are private citizens. And the 11 members roughly half come from uh, backgrounds like mine from the procurement community, and the other half come from the disability rights uh, community, disability advocates. So that gives us actually a pretty good balance to understand the role and mission and the way it looks from uh, different points of view. Uh, Uh, The four private citizen members are recent uh, Biden appointees and have been really bringing tremendous energy and uh, opportunity and new vision into the program. 
That's great. And I think that's perfect place to stop, you know, and I, I we could go on for another two or three hours with oh, very, easily. Uh, very easy with this uh, procurement uh, wonky stuff. So, but Jeff, we have to cut the show. We have to stop someplace and we'll, I'll just, but I'll invite you back. We talk ah, about We'd love to. a bunch of other different issues. Uh, I want to thank my guest today, Jeff Gosis. He's a senior procurement executive at the general services administration. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to off the shelf on federal news network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.